All right, now if you uh, started off the year with the resolution that you're going to read through the Bible in a year, this afternoon you just have to read this much and you'll be all caught up. All right, that's, that's just a little housekeeping there. Um, I haven't really timed how long my message is going to be, so I have planned for a lunch break about noon. Um, so don't get too excited. Uh, Pastor Brad, as, as many of you know, welcome if you're not a regular attender. Did you feel a whirlwind of energy come through here a little bit ago? Eric Barnhart was the whirlwind of energy that came through. Thank you, Eric, for uh, helping us this morning get into the Spirit. Um, he and his wife, Lisa, have been a blessing to our church, and we thank them for being a part of our body as Brad has taught through, Pastor Brad has been ta- uh, teaching through Malachi, it reminded me, and when he asked if I would step in, I, I need these to read, but I don't need them to see you. Uh, when, when he asked me to step in for him while he and Jenna were uh, away, and by the way, we need to pray for Chuck and Luella, who will be taking over the kids for a while, and while they're gone, four, the youngest isn't even six yet, right? Lord, give him strength. <laughs> I said, you know, I want to preach about something that, that is almost never talked about in the Scriptures. And so I'm excited to be up here. I'm not as excited as Eric, but I'm as excited as can be to talk to you about, and I'm not going to tell you what it is just yet. We'll get there. When the, the Old Testament ends, our, our version of the Old Testament is Malachi. Is that, is that what it shows on yours? Now, if you have a bunch of other books after Malachi, you have a Catholic Bible. But our Protestant Bible ends with Malachi. Now, the, the Jewish Scriptures end with Nehemiah. And that's okay. Nehemiah's here. He's just a little bit further up. And Second Chronicles as well. So what we find in Nehemiah and Second Chronicles are the last actions of the Old Testament. And what we find in Malachi are the last words of the Old Testament. So uh, I'm not going to preach on Malachi 4, but I do want to read it because it contains the last prophecy of the Old Testament. So if you have your Bible or your uh, handheld Bible, let's read through, I'll read through um, chapter 4, the final chapter of the Old Testament. And this is Malachi prophesying, For behold, the day is coming burning like a furnace and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff if you grew up on a farm you know that the wheat goes over here and the chaff blows away and the day is coming that will set them ablaze says the lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch but for you who fear my name the son of righteousness that's an important phrase the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day of which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming 
of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, Brother Greg read from Luke 1, which are some of the very first words we hear when we turn the page. When we turn that page to the New Testament, it's Matthew, of course, but the first words we hear are another prophecy spoken by Zechariah or Zacharias, um, the father of John the Baptist. And he starts out by getting a visit from the angel Gabriel. Somebody else got a visit from the angel Gabriel in the early part of Luke. Uh, Mary. Mary got a visit from the angel Gabriel who said, you're going to have a child. Well, I'm not even married. Well, he, uh, the angel Gabriel says to Zacharias, you and your wife, Elizabeth, are going to have a baby. Well, I imagine they're at least as old as me, and we ain't going to have a baby. And Zacharias said so. Well, how can that be? And the angel said, you're not going to say another word until this baby is born. And so from that, and Zacharias was a priest, a Levite, and uh, doing his temple duties and so forth, but could not say a word. Elizabeth eventually gives birth to a baby, and the, the angel had told him, you're going to call him John, and the, everybody else was like, you don't have any, anybody named John in your family. Uh, well, he writes on a tablet, his name is John. And right away, his mouth is opened. And what is his mouth open to do? Proclaim the prophecy that Greg read for us. Let's read it again. His father, that's John, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now we know he's not talking about John there. John was a Levite. He was not in the house of David. So he's talking about somebody else. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. His holy covenant is in Genesis 12, 1-3 and it's salvation by grace. Remember Abraham believed and his faith was deemed righteousness by, the God, by God the Father. That's the covenant. Salvation by faith. Isn't that our covenant today? Salvation by faith in Christ. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us. Didn't we just see that in Malachi? In Malachi, he says, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And here we are. We flip the page. And Zechariah says, The sunrise shall visit us on high to give light to those who sit in darkness 
and in the shadow of death to guide our feet, our feet, our feet into the way of peace. And the child, and that's John, grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. That's pretty good continuity, isn't it? We're in Malachi, we flip the page to the New Testament, the same, uh, same type of prophecy is made. Uh, Malachi says, I will send you Elijah the prophet. This prophecy says, you will prepare the way for the Lord's coming. And indeed, John proves to be, as Jesus says, I have, behold, Elijah has already come and that he referred to John the Baptist. Great continuity. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the... uh, Let me get my... I don't know what i got to do with my Bible here. I'm going to set it over here. By the way, I don't have great legs, so after a little bit I may just sit down on this stool. If I sit down, then you all have to stand up. (laughs) That's just the way it works. Rabbi sits, the people stand. And if you don't, I won't stop. What's, what's the situation when Malachi uh, is writing? Um, or here's a brief, a brief history. All right? The people of Israel are 75. They go down to Egypt. There are 3 million. They come out of Egypt. They live in the land of Israel, the promised land, and they don't do very good a lot of times. The kings, aren't, uh, the kings are corrupt. And eventually we get to a prophecy from uh, Jeremiah who says, you know what, the king of the north is going to come down. He's going to destroy Jerusalem. He's going to destroy the temple. He's going to take you into exile. And he's going to take you into exile for 70 years. And uh, we know that the 70 years has to do with the, the 490 years that they didn't observe the seventh year of letting the fields lay fallow. For 490 years, they didn't observe that. That would have been 70 times that they should have let the land go fallow and they didn't do it. So you're going to be in exile for 70 years. We'll get that 70 years out of you. And so Jeremiah's prophecy comes true. Jerusalem is defeated. The temple is destroyed. Uh, Probably a fourth of the people are taken into exile. All the rich, all the wealthy, all the learned, they leave. The rest who are left are poverty-stricken. And in 70 years, they finally are, some are allowed to come back to Israel to rebuild the temple. The, the temple is rebuilt in uh, 586 B.C. I'm sorry, they're taken in 586 B.C. Their temple is rebuilt in 516 B.C., 70 years later. And now um, there are people, well, maybe 50,000 Jews came back. And about two million never come back. And so we have what's called the diaspora, the spreading of the people of Israel throughout the world. And there are millions of Jews who, who don't live in Israel uh, even today. So we, we come upon uh, Nehemiah who comes back and he rebuilds the walls. Ezra comes back and leads the people in worship. And Malachi, at that same period of time, Malachi starts prophesying against the corruption that's going on in Israel. And so the situation in Israel at that time is Persia is still ruling over the Middle East, over uh, Israel as well as other countries. Uh, Some of them have returned. The temple was rebuilt. 
Malachi writes all of his prophecy in the Hebrew language. Well, let's turn the page now to the New Testament. Just turn one page. And what do we find is the situation in Israel after turning one page? Um, Are the Persians still in control of Israel? No. The Romans are in control. We turned a page and the Romans came in. Is uh, Hebrew the language spoken in Israel? No. They speak Greek. The Romans are in charge, but they're speaking Greek. This doesn't sound right, does it? Is the king of Israel in the line of David and Jacob? No. The king of Israel is in the line of Esau. That isn't right. Is the high priest a Levite? All of the high priests and the priests were supposed to be Levites, right? That's just the way it's always been. But the high priest is the brother-in-law of the king. What's going on? How in the turn of a page did we have all of these circumstances? Where did the Pharisees come from? They weren't anywhere in the Old Testament. Where did the Sadducees come from? Where did the Zealots come from? Where did the Essenes come from? They were nowhere in the Old Testament a page before this. You know, in the, did you realize in the Old Testament and, and, and coming into the New Testament that the temple in Jerusalem was the only place of worship for Jews? It was the only place of worship. They didn't have, you know, 200 churches scattered around town where you could just pick where you wanted to go. It was the temple in Jerusalem that was the only place of worship. And that's why it was so crucial for those exiles to come back and rebuild the temple. Because where they were, they weren't able to worship. Now, they had individual prayer, I'm sure, and that sort of thing. But corporate worship was just in the temple. I didn't even know that. But what happened as this uh, diaspora scattered people all around the world was the development of synagogues. We we can't come to Jerusalem, or there is no temple in Jerusalem to begin with. We're going to worship in a synagogue. We, We get a group of people together, and I don't know how they came up with the word synagogue. I didn't look up the definition, but... It was a group of people, and uh, the early Christians worshipped in little groups too for a time uh, in what we call synagogues. I think there were 2,000 of them scattered around Jerusalem itself. Who were the Samaritans? I didn't hear anything about them in the Old Testament. We just flip one page and we see a whole different world. A whole different world. It's amazing, though, that a flip of the page suddenly transported us 425 years into the future. Did you know that? By flipping from Malachi to Matthew and Luke that we've read from, we are transported 425 years into the future. I didn't realize that until a while back. And that's what fascinated me about this flip of the page. It's called the intertestamental period. A lot of times it's called the silent 400 years. The silent 400 years, why would they call it that? Because God spoke to Malachi and spoke through Malachi 
he spoke out of the mouth of Zacharias, but in between is 400 years of no prophetic speaking, nothing that was recorded as Scripture in our Bibles. That's an amazing 425-year period that God was silent. Now, God was silent, but He was not inactive. And so we can turn to non-biblical resources, not unbiblical, but non-biblical resources to find out what happened in that 425-year period. Uh, if, if you remember, I mentioned the Catholic Bible has what's called the Apocrypha. Good thing you're not sitting closer. I'm in, you're not in the spit zone. The Apocrypha is in the Catholic Bible. It's a series of books, writings, about this intertestamentary or things that happened during the intertestamentary period and it uh, testamental period and it also includes the apocryphal writings also include what's called the pseudepigrapha and these are secular writings and there are also historical writings by a Jew by the name of Josephus you remember his name mentioned if uh, if you've been in Sunday school or uh, Josephus wrote a lot of historical things about this time period. So when we look at all of those uh, resources and put them together, we see what happened during that 425 years of God's silence. Persia was in control of the area. And they... Uh, I don't know if the person who's doing the slides is following me at all, so I'm not paying any attention to the slides, but... Um, I hope there's all of this up there uh, at some point in time. Persia was in control of the Middle East for about 200 years. And they started, uh, or I'm sorry, Malachi started writing his writings about 425 B.C. Uh, Persia was conquered by a guy named Alexander the Great. He was a Greek and as you may recall from your studies, uh, Alexander the Great just ran roughshod all over this area, conquering here, conquering there. He even went over the Himalayas and, on elephants or something. I mean, it was just amazing what he and his troops were able to do. And he, uh, at some point, Alexander the Great came in and brought the Greek culture into this area the Greek language, the Greek religion, the Greek culture. And Greek became, there's so much to tell about Alexander and all of this, but we're going to kind of skim over a lot of that. This area was swallowed up into the Greek culture at that time. And that was in 334 B.C. when the Greeks came in. So at 334 B.C. we start to see the Greek influence, heavily influenced. Um, if... if uh, if we had to say, it took over Israel. Many Jews started practicing the Greek religion. They spoke the Greek language. The Hebrew language kind of went by the wayside. And they adopted the Greek culture wholesale in the whole Middle, Middle East area. Now, during this time period, a, uh, it, we, we call this Hellenization, the Hellenization of the Middle East. And I don't know if that rings any bells for you, but when I think of Hellenization, I think of Acts chapter 6. Uh, a great cry arose from the Hellenized Jews that they weren't being treated fairly at the service of the tables. 
And as you know, that cry was responded to by the apostles, and they appointed six men of of good repute to start helping serve better the, the tables. And that's what we call the first deacons in the church. Uh, but anyway, that's where the Hellenization uh, idea comes from. And so what we have is uh, the Greek language and customs and religion um, pretty much takes over the area. At the same time, during the same time, and around 285 B.C., the Greeks appointed a group of, what the, what the legend is, is they appointed a group of 72 Jewish scholars and they were tasked with, and this was in Alexandria, Egypt, which was a large Jewish population down in Alexandria, Egypt. They were tasked with translating the Hebrew scriptures, in particular uh, the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the scriptures, translating it from Hebrew into Greek. And so the legend is that 72 scholars translated that entire section of scripture into Greek in 72 days. I I don't know if that's true or not. It isn't important whether it is or not. But the Greek Old Testament became the standard. Nobody read Hebrew anymore. The Old Testament was read in Greek. And uh, even in Jesus' day, some of the quotes of the Old Testament that you'll see in the New Testament are from the Septuagint. That's the the, uh, Greek translation, the Septuagint. Now, Alexander died in 323 B.C. Uh, we're, remember now, Malachi wrote in 424 B.C., so he's already done his writing. We're past Malachi. Uh, Jesus was born... How many of you think Jesus was born in 0 B.C.? Uh, don't raise your hand, because there's a little trouble with that. They think now that Jesus was born somewhere between 6 and 4 B.C. Uh, little errors in the timing of everything. And so we're heading in that direction. The Septuagint was uh, written starting in 285 B.C., finished in 130 B.C., and uh, in 198 B.C., the, the benevolent Greeks from Egypt that were ruling this area were overthrown by the non-benevolent Greeks from the north, from Syria, the Seleucids, and they took over, and they were not so benevolent. They, the, the prior to this time, the Jews were kind of left alone. Practice your religion if you want to. We aren't going to trouble you. As long as you don't make trouble, we're not going to trouble you. But the Seleucids came in and they said, you are going to be Greeks. You're going to be Greeks in every sense of the way. Your culture is going to be Greek. Your religion is going to be Greek. Your language is going to be Greek. And they, they tried to destroy all of the copies of the Torah. Um, Antichus Epiphany was the leader of the Greeks at that time. He came in and desecrated the temple. He desecrated it by erecting a statue of Zeus right there in the temple. Zeus was the Greek god, the head Greek god of many other gods. Not only that, he went into the temple, onto the altar, and sacrificed a pig. Now, if you know anything about unclean animals, the the worst of the unclean animals was the pig. The worst offense you could possibly lay against the Jews was to sacrifice a pig on the holy altar of the temple. So he was not a popular guy in Israel after that. And in fact, the Jews said, that's enough. And they rebelled against the Greeks. 
And they did that in 164 B.C. And in fact, um, they were successful. They drove out the Greeks in 164 B.C. and took over their own lives. For about 100 years, the Jews were independent. And that's the Maccabean period. We, we read about the Maccabees and the Apocrypha and so forth. That was the Maccabean time frame when the Jews were all independent and governing themselves. Well, as you might guess, they didn't do a great job of governing themselves, had a lot of squabbles. And in uh, 63 BC, this squabble over the temple and who's in charge uh, led them to one of them, one group reached out to the Romans who were starting to become pretty powerful. And they said, we need you to come in and rescue us from this squabble. Get, get this thing back in order. Well, the Romans came in. Pompey was the, the general. And he just did everybody out. I mean, he got everybody out of there. And the Romans took over. In 63 BC, they took over Israel. And the Romans uh, were pretty practical. Um, they, they said, you know what? Greek is the trade language all around the Middle East. Everybody that did any commerce around the Middle East spoke Greek. We're just going to leave Greek in there. And we'll just, you know, they spoke Greek too. They were, Latin was their language, but the language of commerce was Greek. And so when the Romans came in, Greek continued to be the language of the area. And the scriptures had been translated into Greek. And so the Old Testament was being read in Greek. And uh, when we see Jesus born in 6 or 4 BC, the Romans are in control of the Middle East. So now you see one flip of the page has made a totally drastic situation. Changes, changes, changes in Israel. He used this period of silence for a purpose. I, you know, he didn't speak. There's been no writings from God in that time period, that 400, period of silence, 400 years of silence. But he wasn't inactive. He was preparing for a great thing. All of these things were, had a purpose. They had a purpose in God's economy. And obviously he was preparing for the coming of the Messiah. With all of these conquerors, all of these countries that were conquering Israel, Israel started to get real interested in the scriptures about the Messiah. And, and sure enough, God was preparing them for the Messiah's coming. Now the Messiah that they were expecting was what? A conquering hero on a white horse with uh, the uh, idea of overthrowing the Romans and, and driving them out and Israel would again be independent. But that's not the kind of Messiah that came. They were ignoring the prophecies of the suffering servant Messiah who came not for physical victory, but for spiritual victory. And that's the Jesus that we see when we turn the page to the New Testament. Are there any other periods of silence, by the way, uh, where God was not speaking? Uh, the one that comes to my mind is the, the uh, turn of the page between the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus. We, we are looking at the last page of the book of Genesis and we see about 75 Jews who have made their trip down to Egypt to... Uh, escaped the famine and Joseph was one of those who was there and invited them to come 
And we turn the page, and now there are three million Jews in Egypt. And they're not guests anymore, are they? They're slaves. A turn of the page is 300 years at that, at that juncture. And God used the silence of that 300 years to make the children of Israel a force to be reckoned with so that they could take their exodus back to the promised land. So there's another example of God using a period of silence uh, to carry out his plan. What's another purpose in that silence between the Old and New Testament? If, if the New Testament had been written in the same Hebrew language that the Old Testament was written in, it probably would not have spread outside of Israel. Nobody outside of Israel spoke Hebrew or could read Hebrew. But everybody can read Greek. God used that time frame to create a situation where the spoken language, the common language that everybody knew, was Greek. And what did he do? He translated, they translated the scriptures into Greek, and now the faith can grow far beyond Israel. The Christian faith was able to spread far and wide because of the common language that the New Testament was written in. All right, uh, any other time period of silence? How about today? How long have we been in a period of silence today? Almost 2,000 years, haven't we? God has not written any prophecies, and it says at the end of Revelation, better not add to these words or take away from them, or you'll be cursed. We've had a 2,000-year period of silence today. And what did we say about periods of silence? God's preparing. God's preparing. What's he preparing for? He's preparing for the greatest event in human history. Now let me read from Hebrews 9, 20, 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are you eagerly waiting for the return of Christ? I believe in the imminent return of Christ. Do you know that? You know what that means? The imminent return? Let's read 1 Thessalonians 4, 6, and 7. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. And Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. Uh, you know, years ago, my wife and I went to visit family in California. And uh, as far as I know, none of them were believers in Christ. 
And so it was at Christmas time, and we said, we want to go to church on Christmas Eve. Let's find a great Baptist church or some church that will just preach a great gospel message and uh, take our family, and maybe the Lord will touch their hearts. So we looked in the yellow pages back when there was phone books and looked in the newspaper back when there was a written newspaper with ads and stuff, and we found a little, well, we didn't know it was little. We found the Baptist church that was having a Christmas Eve service and the time and the, and the address. So we said, that's where we're going to go. So we told everybody, we're going to church on Christmas Eve. And everybody was like, okay, it's Christmas. Let's, let's do that. So we get to that address. And it's, you know what a storefront church is? Well, this was a storefront church and it wasn't a big store. Uh, churches now take over whole malls and everything. Well, this was one of those storefronts that was probably going to fit. This, this all, you would probably all not even fit in this church. We walk in and there's chairs on the floor and there is a kind of a stage on the other end. And we thought, oh, brother. Here we wanted everybody to hear the gospel and look at this. It's just a little storefront church. Well, this guy started preaching And he preached the gospel. And I will never forget. He got down on one knee. And he says, there will be a time when every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Amen. And that's going to be true of the unbeliever as well as the believer. The unbeliever will recognize Christ to their forever punishment. The believer will recognize the Savior for forever heaven, forever fellowship with God. I've never get that picture out of my mind. Are you waiting in eager anticipation for the coming of Christ? Do you believe in the imminent coming of Christ? What does the eminence mean? It means there is nothing that has to happen before He comes. Nothing. It doesn't have to be this. It doesn't have to be that. We, we don't look for, oh, there's five things that have to happen. Then we can start looking for Christ. Christ could come before I finish and I pray He does. Are you... I forget this so often in my daily walk. We need to be prepared. God has made it possible. Modern transportation, communications, radio, television, satellite communications, you got iPhones on, you got all kinds of phones. There's there's every chance that the gospel will be spread around the world. At the time that was written, who could have thought that that would ever be possible? It is every way possible now. I want to read, uh, I'm running out of time, but I want to read an email I got this morning. Uh, We have some uh, shirt tail relatives in Phoenix who uh, their son has uh, been a missionary in Mibu, uh, over in the islands. Um, and he says, I was up late last night, early this morning, talking with Sisi in Mibu. 
His mission was to bring the gospel to the Mibu area and to turn it over to the natives ultimately. And their big task over the last six, seven, eight years is to been translate the Bible into their language. Very difficult to do. But the natives, uh, believers in that area have been doing that very faithfully and he really isn't over there that much now. Uh, they want it to be the believers uh, of the area that spread the gospel and it is very successful. But it's a very isolated area and he says... The gang activity has recently escalated where the gang brutally attacked another of the larger nearby villages. I'll spare the details, but suffice it to say it was brutal. People who are escaping to Mibu are consistently bringing word that the gang has every intent on attacking Mibu. Soon, and specifically killing Sesi, the leader of the Christian movement there, and destroying their system. I was glad to be able to talk with Sessi and share his concerns and so forth. He actually has more faith than mine. As I hear him talk as if he expects maybe he will be killed soon, he says that he is happy to leave the end in God's hands. He doesn't know what God's plans are in all this, but is happy to finally go be with him if that is God's plan. But also Sessi is concerned to have not had the chance to finish the translation of the scriptures. So he's torn. He says everyone has a strong sense of helplessness, which is having them much more conscious of their dependence on the Lord and looking to him in prayer in all of this. We don't have that in our lives. We've got it so easy. What do I have to pray for today? I don't have the urgency of someone threatening to kill me, praise God, yet. The rumors are that the gang knows that the handheld radios and walkie-talkies that they gave them are being used, and specifically they're looking for and targeting any individuals they think might have them in their possession. <coughs> the gang sent, um, the gangs uh, tried to buy weapons with uh, marijuana, bags of marijuana to trade for weapons, and they're afraid that if they get these weapons, it could be slaughter. Mibu is feeling a bit isolated. There is no opportunity for any resistance groups or the army to come in because the army said they're afraid that if they try to come in, they're afraid of retaliation from the gang. That's how powerful the gangs are. Does that sound like Mexico? They're somebody whose life is on the line, and yet they're looking forward to heaven. They're looking forward, if that's God's will, to being with God. Am I looking forward with that kind of fervor? Do I have the whirlwind of faith that guides me every day? Well, we need to have that. Let me tell you what we ought to be doing during this time period of silence. First of all, what's the great temptation that we have when there's a long period of silence like there has been? We're tempted to make up our own rules. Oh, I don't need God. We're going to make up our own rules. We tend to make up our own gods. We need to regularly be studying God's Word. And I mean studying it, not just reading it. We need to be involved in daily individual worship and meditation. We need to be encouraging one another. I'm flying through these because my time is at an end. We need to be sharing the Gospel in our community and around the world. 
And we need to be living in eager anticipation of Christ's return. And finally, we must pray. Are you as bad at praying as I am? Probably not. So often I find myself going a day or two and not really having taken the time to pray fervently about the situations around me, the people around me, pray for His coming. We need to seek fellowship with God regularly. Praise Him for who He is. Praise Him for what He's done. Seek His divine intervention in our lives, in the lives of people like those in Mibu, in Indonesia. Seek to live a holy life in the Spirit. We need to thank Him for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Is God silent in your life? I'll bet He is. I'll bet you feel lonely. I'll bet you feel like, what's the point of what I'm doing here? Or am I doing anything? Of those who are seriously searching for God, both believers and unbelievers, Acts 7.27 says that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. I read that one day and I said, if I just grope for Him, He's there. He's there. His Spirit is within me. He's within arm's reach of each one of us. Jeremiah 33, 3, and I'll end with that. Call to me and I will answer. I will answer you and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. Let's pray. Father, awaken a spark in our lives, both personally and corporately, that we might serve you that we might seek how to encourage others in our spiritual walk. Help us to feel your presence as we read through your word. Help us to see that you are alive as our, our, our mouth and our ears hear your word proclaimed. Help us to live with eager anticipation of your soon return. In Jesus' name, amen.